This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. Our aim is to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. Our guest is from a company offering a weather and climate security platform. He explains how weather intelligence affects aviation, including airlines and airports. In the news, the FAA wants radio altimeters replaced. EasyJet has a solution to fly with fewer crew. Spirit Airlines says no to JetBlue. An electric airplane first. Jail time for some unruly passengers. Someone exited the airplane on a taxiway. And Virgin Atlantic flight training requirements. All that and more, including an Australia news desk, is coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks Podcast. This is episode 701 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight, and joining me is first Max Trescott. He's host of Aviation News Talk Podcast. He's a national CFI of the year, and he's an expert on learning to fly or purchase a Cirrus aircraft. Hey, hello there. And also, I'm a semi-expert on weather radar in the aircraft. I was not here last Monday because I was flying out in a vision jet to Texas, did an all-day seminar and onboard radio, and oh my gosh, a lot of cool stuff. Yeah, good, good. Well, you'll have to fill us in coming up. Uh, next, we'll introduce David Vanderhoof. He is our resident aviation historian, and he's from, these days, the American Helicopter Museum. Hey, everybody. Um, looking forward to tonight's thundering conversation and maybe some lightning later also. But no, looking, go- looking good. My life is not as exciting as, as Mr. Trescott's, but um, looking forward to tonight. Very good. And our Rob Mark is uh, still off this week. Um, I guess, David, uh, as far as we know, everything went successfully. Uh, I spoke to Rob a couple of times this over the last week, and he's home. He's resting uncomfortably, um, but he looks like he's on his way to a full mend. So we wish him the best, um, and he should be back soon. If you see Rob on either Facebook or Twitter, wish him wish him well, just because he's he's toughening it out. That's right. He's had some surgery. You, you said he has like a, a neck. Um, he he almost has what's what looks like a cone of shame, but was, not quite. Yeah, that's what <laughs> that's I was, right. See, I was going to make a joke about that. <laughs> now he can't lick himself. That's right. Yeah. All right. Get well, Rob. Do it soon. We love you, man. Our guest this episode is Scott Gilmore. He's the global vice president and GM of aviation at Tomorrow.io which provides a weather and climate security platform. Now, Scott has over 40 years experience in the aviation industry, including 27 as a pilot, and he drives Tomorrow.io's aviation go-to-market offerings, including sales activity, revenue management, the product roadmap. Prior to Tomorrow.io, Scott served as the senior product manager for Flight Deck Solutions at the weather company and IBM business. And he also held various senior leadership positions at IATA and Unisys. Scott's got a bachelor degree in aviation technology from University Alaska Anchorage. So, Scott, welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. 
I think everybody's familiar with the idea of weather forecasts, but later we're going to explore what weather intelligence means to airlines and airports. But uh, Scott, uh, tell us a little bit about your piloting experience. What have you what have you flown? What have you done? I started in the United States Air Force as a mechanic uh, when I was a kid. Uh, my neighbor had a, a beaver on floats, and I was actually more enthralled with his brother who tore it apart and did the annual. So I went into the Air Force thinking, this is really what I want to do, until I discovered flying. And I got picked right off in my first tour of the Air Force for to be a flight engineer. And oddly enough, I made just about an entire career of flying as a flight engineer. I flew for American Trans Air. I flew for a really interesting, which ended up being actually one of my favorite companies. I flew for a company Focus Air, and we did charters for Cargolux and Lufthansa. And then I stayed in the Air Force, even after I started getting raided and you know chasing that dream. I stayed in the Air Force Reserve for 32 years and flew the C-130 and C-5. Nice. Very nice. Oh. That's quite a background. And you get to uh, work and, and create a career still related to aviation, which is, uh, which is very exciting. It is. And oddly, it was when I was at Focus flying for Lufthansa is where I saw the birth of the EFB. It wasn't a conscious, like, I got to find a different career path. It just instantly really made me think of all the paperwork and all the stuff that we just fill out in an airplane that has really great data to do all kinds of things, but it's just sitting there useless. So I, that's how I found this path. Terrific. Well, we're glad you did. We're excited about having a great conversation with you and, and learning more about how all this interrelates and how how airlines are affected, how airports are affected, and, and especially the technology involved in all this. I, I think it's going to be a, a great conversation. As David said, I'll try to keep it thunderous. Yes. <laughs> David was pretty good with those, wasn't he? Yeah. That, yeah. That's kind of his thing. All right. First, we're going to uh, talk about some of the aviation news from the past week. Is everybody ready? Ready from the West. Ready from the first date. Our first story comes from Reuters. FAA wants airlines to retrofit, replace radio altimeters. I thought we were done talking about 5G interference. <laughs> well, we don't yet have a, a fleet of airliners with radio altimeters that are immune from uh, interference from, from the 5G service, which is on a frequency that's very close to the radar altimeters. And if you think about it, radar altimeters have been around for, I don't know, probably 50, 60 years. And back in the bad old days, they had no competition for those uh, very high frequencies. And of course, now we've got uh, all kinds of uh, cell phone bands and a new one, which is right next to the radar altimeter frequencies. And these old ones just don't have adequate filtering to uh, keep the, uh, you know, to have good off-channel rejection, to reject the signal, which is right next to theirs. So the uh, AT&T and Verizon and others voluntarily delayed uh, switching on their towers. And the date now is July 5th, where they would plan to switch on some of their towers near airports. So this is a delay from, from January. In the meantime, the FAA is trying to get the airlines to replace 
uh, you know, their, their older equipment. Now they say at this point, they've cleared about 90% of the U.S. commercial aviation fleet. Uh, they've determined that, yep, they've got altimeters that uh, can resist the, the, the signals from adjacent frequencies, but they're still working to get the last few, uh, you know, the last 10% converted over. So clearly they've identified uh, which radar altimeters, uh, you know, can be used and which are subject to uh, interference. And this is just kind of the last push to uh, to get airlines on board. Now, I would have to imagine that there are going to be some supply chain issues. You know, if you figure however many of these were built per year and now suddenly you need thousands of them, uh, there's probably going to be delay. So I would have to imagine that regardless of what the airlines agree to, it's highly unlikely they're all going to be installed by July 5th. Well, we see that the FAA is uh, holding uh, daily meetings even with uh AT&T and Verizon to talk about this. They they want to uh, speak with the telecom and aviation industry officials. And they're looking for, quote, options and uh, commitment to actions necessary to, to meet the objectives. It kind of feels like uh, these are maybe the conversations that could have, should have taken place a long time ago. It just seems a little after the fact to me. Yes. Well, I, I, we've had a good five plus years uh, running up to this where it was clear that, and I forget the name of the company that uh, decided to try and get this these frequencies reallocated for use by cellular and they were successful, uh, which I'm sure uh, made the value of their company jump up tremendously. And I'm sure the airlines, you know, they hate spending money. So they're, they're holding out saying, hey, we were here first. And I think the FAA is just kind of using a, a very gentle club to try and jawbone them <laughs> into solving this problem. Otherwise, you know, the, the cell phone companies want to move forward with their frequencies. So, yeah, I think this is a gentle persuasion going on by the FAA. Well, I'm glad they're having the conversations. That's, uh, you know, that that's I guess that's the important part of it. Uh, I mean, hopefully we'll get some consensus and move forward. Yeah. And anybody who's out there flying, hears these notums all the time on my local uh, airport ATIS every hour, they update it and they mention 5G notums in effect, which is pretty funny because there's probably not more than one or two airplanes at the entire airport with a 5G uh, radio uh, altimeter <laughs> installed in the aircraft. But, you know, they, they have to publicize this anyway. All right. We have an item from the BBC. I think this is kind of interesting. I mean, well, kind of brilliant in a way, maybe. But uh, we've been talking about staff shortages and how commercial flight schedules have been affected, and not just in the U.S., globally as well. So EasyJet is, um, well, they're looking at a way to reduce cabin crew. And uh, they're taking an interesting approach to accomplishing that. Yeah, this really caught my attention, too, because I thought, wow, I never would have thought of that. This is really clever, and it makes total sense. And so uh, there are rules as to how many cabin attendants you need based upon the number of seats and passengers you have on a given airplane. Actually, it's based on the seats, not the the passengers. And we know that there have been all kinds of shortages of pilots, cabin crew, and you name it. And EasyJet has announced they're going to be taking out the last row of seats, which allows them to limit uh, the maximum seats to 150 passengers, which means now they can fly with just three cabin crew members instead of four. So effectively, they've, what, increased their, the, the number of flights they can staff by a third or something like that while they're giving up potentially a very tiny bit of revenue, except on those flights that are full. So yeah, pretty clever solution. I was kind of surprised that 
I mean, they didn't think of this before. I mean, when you're doing the, you know, when you're making the calculations for the economics of the of the aircraft you want to buy or lease, and uh, yeah, you're looking at the, the the seats and the density and all of that. I don't know. I just found myself thinking, well, you, you could reduce your cabin crew costs by twenty five percent, you know, if you just take out one one little row of seats only. I, I'm kind of surprised that that didn't come up before. But you know what it is? Desperate times kind of call for desperate solutions. So, you know, they probably were never under this kind of uh, pressure in the past. And, you know, it's not just the staffing issue. Think about the huge rise in the price of aviation fuel right now. And I'm sure that's put additional pressure on them to try and save money somewhere. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the few dollars they lose on that last row of seats is probably made up for by the airplanes they can now keep in the air that wouldn't have flown uh, because they didn't have enough staff to fly them. So pretty pretty smart solution all the way around. You know, it kind of vaguely, vaguely reminds me of owner of a radio station in northern Pennsylvania back in the in the 70s, and there was a little bit of a recession going on. His solution to reduce costs was to turn the, turn the AM station off at 10 o'clock at night <laughs> instead of at midnight. And I remember some of his competitors, actually, they weren't competitors, they were in other markets, but they just thought, what a lousy solution. <laughs> but, you know, it made sense to him, right? He, he wasn't paying a disc jockey, he didn't have to pay for the electricity and so on. So, you know, people do whatever they think they need to do when times are tight. Well, the other part about it is, how often are those six seats filled? Nobody really ever wants to, unless it's a really packed flight, nobody ever wants to sit in the very back of the airplane. You know, and the fact that it's only one row is in a way kind kind of brilliant amazing where the fulcrum was you know you could remove one cabin crew i mean that's an amazing kind of pivot point for that kind of thing now i i know this argument the argument is that it's a desperate time but you know of course the flight crew are like well you're you're endangering passengers but i mean are you i mean they want a full crew but it, definitely, it's interesting that that was the pivot point, was just one row. You're right. It endangers them because when the fights break out, we have fewer cabin crew members now to, <laughs> to manage the fights. <laughs> when I saw this article, the first thing that jumped out at me, though, is, okay, it's a few seats, but think about the cost if they had to cancel one flight. This pretty much paid for itself over and over. Good point. And I think it makes sense that the CAA regulations deal with the number of seats and not the number of passengers because uh, can you can you imagine the the confusion that it would or the complexity it would introduce if it was based on the number of passengers on the on the flight cuz i mean you, you have to you know, schedule each flight potentially with a different number of uh, cabin crew depending on how many passengers ended up showing up it just sounds like a recipe for disaster so I think it it makes more sense to base it on the number of seats and not on the number of passengers on board. But um, yeah, uh, Max, you mentioned uh, fuel prices and and how that's uh, going up and affecting uh, affecting everyone, but uh, the airlines particularly. And in uh, in Nigeria, uh, the airlines are threatening to ground. Uh, this is from Business Insider: ground domestic flights amid soaring jet fuel prices. And nine of the Nigerian airlines issued a statement, I guess, saying that the cost of imported jet fuel had increased nearly fourfold as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, and as I mentioned, they're, stop, uh, they're threatening to stop domestic flights. They say their costs have increased from about 40% to nearly 95%. 
and that makes operations just really untenable. Yes, I was first of all surprised at the number of airlines that are operating. In Nigeria. I'm, glad, I'm glad I wasn't alone <laughs> on that one. Yeah, but uh, I, I can also see why they are under uh, such tremendous pressure because uh, prices of fuel have gone up uh, so dramatically. The um, other thing I had seen in another article was that they're in a bit of a squeeze because their revenues comes in in local currency, and yet they have to pay for fuel in U.S. dollars. And I guess the local currency hasn't been as strong recently, which means they're getting paid in a weak currency and having to buy fuel in a a more expensive uh, currency. So that's squeezing them further. They also had complained that they, they, the airlines, had essentially been subsidizing service for about four months now, which I guess is a way of saying, hey, we've been losing money for the last four months. Something needs to be done. I did see an update earlier today which said that they actually agreed to continue flying as they continue to negotiate with the the government of Nigeria. Now, I'm guessing those negotiations probably include, uh, you know, for example, the ability to raise prices. Maybe they're restricted on, you know, raising prices. Maybe they're asking for subsidies. I mean, I would think that those are probably the two areas that they're negotiating on. Um, And I have no doubt that uh, when they said, hey, we're going to stop flying everything on Monday, uh, that put a lot of pressure on the government to try and uh, help help solve this particular problem. So, again, desperate times. That's right. We also uh, see a kind of a different um, issue, but also an operational issue where um, Alaska Airlines pilots are currently voting whether or not they want to go on strike. Uh, they started voting on May 9th, the uh, uh, vote throughout the month of May, almost all of it, until May 25th. I guess they've been operating for, the pilots have, without a contract for three years now. Wow. That's a really, really long time, and I can understand why they're frustrated. Uh, but I was also thinking, you know, the, the public, you know, the traveling public has certainly, uh, you know, endured a lot of uh, canceled flights and all kinds of other Things uh, you know, airline travel is just more fraught with you know issues now than it was uh, two years ago. And who wants to uh, show up at the airport and find out that their airline is on strike? So again, maybe this will apply some pressure to both parties to come to the table and uh, start moving forward. But if not, holy cow! Imagine service being disrupted during the the busy summer travel months. Yeah, and the uh, the union, the Airline Pilots Association, Alpa. Uh, says that the effects of this lack of a contract are already being felt. They say that pilots are leaving the airline because there's no contract and they can find employment that's a little bit more uh, lucrative or at least operating under a contract elsewhere. Pilots who are entering the profession are looking to other airlines over Alaska because of this issue of not having a contract. And uh, the union says that the in many cases the other airlines are offering better job security, better work rules, and other things that impact quality of life. So we'll watch uh, through this month how the how the voting goes at Alaska Airlines. You know, I was just thinking, uh, Seattle is kind of the. The hub, I think, for, um, you know, certainly a lot of Alaska flights come out of there. And that's also where Boeing is based. I saw an article just a day or so ago that says that Boeing has lost a tremendous number of uh, engineers to other companies uh, in the Northwest. Some of them have, uh, including um, 
pilots. Uh, so they've lost, I think, on the order of uh, you know several hundred of their senior engineering fellows. So these are the engineers with the have attained kind of the highest rank, if you will, uh, within the engineering uh, you know pay scale. Uh, but they're also losing pilots, it said, to uh, to Prime Air. Uh, and also, I think they were losing engineers to, to Microsoft. You think about it, there are just so many aviation venture, you know, firms and uh, companies and startup companies that are looking for, you know, aviation engineers in particular. You know, it's going to be a, a severe brain drain for uh, for Boeing. And I would imagine that, you know, Alaska is having a little bit of problems as well if they haven't had a contract for three years. So yeah, it's not a good time to uh, not be keeping your employees happy because there are so many different options for them to, to go off and do something else right now. Yeah. I mean, Scott, you're in a little bit of a different area, but um, do you find that you can, um, to get the skill sets you need uh, into uh, tomorrow.io or is it a tough market for you as well? Um, actually, it's a great question. Uh, I've had Quite a few, most of my team, the customer service people, the customer success managers, my solution engineers, they're all people that have come directly from an airline career. Um, some have left airlines and gone into this direction like I have. Some have actually left the airline just because pay, you know, how that goes. Actually, I've heard from many airlines um where some of the new hire classes, they have people that don't even show up for new hire training. Wow. So, <laughs> that is unheard of. Yeah, that's incredible. It, yeah. And honestly, I have to say, guys, when the pandemic COVID first started, I thought, oh, this is just, I, I can't believe this. And actually, I'm shocked to see how aggressive everybody has to hire now. Now everybody's really so in such a deficit and you can't hire people fast enough. Mm-hmm. You know, when you hear... Some of these major airlines talk about we need to hire 2,000 pilots this year just to keep ahead of the curve. That's I didn't think that was going to happen. It's mind-blowing. Yeah, it really is. Well, and we know how all these things get solved usually, and it's usually a, a turn in, turned out in the economy. So yeah. uh, little things like higher inflation, uh, you know, slow down. <laughs> so I'm guessing all those projections of how many people are needed will probably decrease here over the next year or two. But yeah, even even if we just go down somewhat, there's still strong demand for for employees and pilots. Hmm. Well, we have a bit of a uh, update, I guess this is from the Washington Post. We had talked previously about Spirit Airlines and their uh, proposed merger with Frontier Airlines and then JetBlue coming in with a roughly $3.6 billion takeover bid. And Washington Post is reporting that Spirit Airlines rejects JetBlue's buyout bid, citing approval concerns. And so the board of Spirit Airlines uh, have said that JetBlue uh, is, uh, is is off the table for us. They want to continue to pursue their merger with Frontier Airlines. The uh, the Spirit Airlines board chairman, Max Gardner, is quoted as saying, the board determined that the JetBlue proposal involves an unacceptable level of closing risk that would be assumed by Spirit stockholders. we believe that our pending merger with Frontier will start an exciting new chapter for Spirit. So there may be other factors involved here, but uh, at least on the uh, to the public, 
um, they're raising the issue that I think we talked about a little bit, which is that, you know, would there be regulatory or regulator or government approval of a Spirit Airlines JetBlue Airways merger or takeover? Well, I think this is proof that we have listeners uh, among Spirit Airlines because you may recall our discussion was along the lines of this deal makes absolutely no sense. This combination of JetBlue and Spirit, we basically said doesn't make sense to us. Either there's you know something about this deal that we don't understand or it just doesn't seem like a, a very good combination. <laughs> and I guess Spirit kind of reached a, a similar conclusion. Maybe there are other kinds of uh, you know issues going in there when they say uh, risk of not closing. Maybe you know, there was questions about the financing that JetBlue was providing and so on. But we just felt that as a, as a combination that, you know, very different business models, very different customer sets. It seemed like you know, if uh, you basically your, your costs would go up on on average, which means you would lose a lot of the customers, the spirit customer base. It almost didn't make sense unless JetBlue was just looking for more airplanes because they certainly weren't going to be able to bring along all of the the revenue associated with uh, with Spirit. So yeah, to me, it's not a big surprise. Ironically, um, I was driving in the car with Amber, and she said to me, "Is there an airline that's?" overall bright yellow with black i'm like oh yeah that's spirit she's like the one you were always talking about (laughs) (laughs) yeah oh she's listening to you david that's good yeah unfortunately that's see what happens when you corrupt these outsiders (laughs) we have uh, an article from flying magazine uh, by tom patterson actually um this is u.s aviation first private pilot certificate earned using an electric airplane I met Tom. Tom, well, Tom used to uh, be a, um, a journalist uh, with CNN, uh, specializing in aviation. He was with CNN for uh, many, many years, uh, and I, I see now he's a staff reporter for Flying and also Modern Flying. Uh, so uh, when I ran into Tom, I think it was in Seattle. I ran into Tom. This was this was some years ago. So yeah, it's good to see he's at Flying. So. Private pilot certificate earned using an electric airplane. Max, that's pretty exciting. This is pretty amazing. Talk about a a first. Uh, So uh, this comes from a news release out of uh, Wright Rudder, which is a a flight school. And it's also the uh, Pipistrel Master Distributor for uh, the United States. Uh, So Andrew Chan is... Uh, the one who provided this photo, I met Andrew oh last year when he was flying the Pipistrel around to show that to uh, to people. And he was promoting that airplane as well as I think looking for uh, you know dealers that would uh, you know work through their distribution. Uh, and it says that uh, Shane Fisher, who uh, did his check ride in March the sixth, did his check ride in the Pipistrel Velis Electro, which is the only uh, certified electric airplane. At uh, this point in time. Now, the question, of course, becomes, well, how did he do those cross-country flights? Because essentially the uh, airplane has about a 50-minute flight time with a 30-minute reserve. And the the cross-country flight is going to require three 50-mile legs. The airplane does about 98 knots. So that tells you, wow, at a bare minimum, that's an hour and a half of flying to to do that cross-country flight. And it turns out that he did his cross the cross country portion of his training in a Pipistrel Cenus, which uh, or no, actually in a Virus, 
uh, which is very uh, – it's funny. I get all the names confused as to which model is which. But but anyway, and it's funny because virus is spelled virus and sinus is spelled sinus. <laughs> so it kind of makes it a little bit more confusing as well to remember how they pronounce uh, these names that are otherwise kind of common. Uh, so it turns out that uh, Shane is going to become a Pepistrel dealer for the Philadelphia area, and hey. he now has his uh, yeah he now has his private uh, pilot's license and did his check ride in a, uh, a Pepistrel uh, Velis. Now there is one question that some people have raised, and I'm not really sure what the answer is. Uh, I think that this aircraft is under some version of the experimental, um, it may be in the experimental exhibition class or something like that. It, it's not certified under the uh, the standard Part 23 rules. And for experimental aircraft, you're not allowed to, to rent them. Um, so I guess they found some way where they were able to weave through the regulations to to do the, uh, you know, the check ride and some of the flying in this uh, aircraft. Uh, and I'm sure we'll hear, uh, you know, at some point in the future, you know, exactly uh, how that was done. I will say the photograph of the, the DPE and the uh, the brand new pilot shows the pilot um, kind of leaning on the propeller and extending his arm through the propeller to shake hands with the DPE. <laughs> Most people would say from a prop safety standpoint, you don't really want to be sticking your arms through the propeller. No. Now, maybe it's a little safer with an electric aircraft than with a uh, a piston-powered aircraft where depending upon, you know, whether a particular wire has broken and whether there's any fuel left in the cylinders, literally you can just move, you can just nudge the prop a little and it will fire and, you know, run for two seconds, which is just enough to, to ruin your life. Uh, I would guess that uh, that's not, that failure mechanism doesn't exist in electric airplanes. So, you know, maybe propeller safety is not as big an issue in electric airplanes as it is in piston-powered aircraft. Or the battery was removed. <laughs> yeah. 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 But still, you know, good practice is good practice. Uh, yes. You, you, should, you don't want to have to think about, you know, okay, is it electric? Is it gas? Should I stick my body parts near the propeller or not? It's just a flat-out stay away from the propeller seems like a safer overall approach. Yeah, it's exciting to see another, you know, another milestone really with uh, with electric aircraft. We, I think we have many, many more milestones yet to come, uh, but it's a significant one nonetheless. Well, Scott, one of the things that we've been talking about lately uh, is unruly passengers because you know, they've been all over the press, and <laughs> we see many different. Uh, examples of passengers who have gotten themselves in trouble uh, one way or another. And I think collectively here on this podcast, we've kind of favored some pretty severe consequences for for those who uh, uh, are unruly or maybe more specifically who do not or refuse to follow the directives of the crew. And uh, in our... <laughs> almost weekly paddle your own canoe uh, item we see what's happened to one of these unruly passengers in terms of uh, his sentence well this was unusual in, in one respect i probably wouldn't have mentioned it because we see so many of stories about people who are unruly in the cabin uh, this was a drunk passenger no surprise there this is a guy who tried to open the aircraft door while it was in flight no surprise there However, he did, while the aircraft was in flight, manage to get that door 
partially open. Now, that was quite a shock to me. I didn't know that that was even possible. Uh, certainly, it's not possible at higher altitudes. Uh, but this was an Embraer uh, E45 regional jet operated by a commute air on behalf of United Express. And apparently, as they were, you know, in the approach to landing process, uh, this, I was going to say this gentleman, this idiot. There we go. Can I say that? <laughs> it's more fitting. Thank you. This guy rushed up to the front of the cockpit uh, and the flight attendant tried to block him. He ran into her, pushed and grabbed her, and she ended up hitting her head on the side of the galley. He managed to partially open the main cabin door. And then some of the passengers, including uh, one off-duty uh, U.S. Marshal, helped uh, wrestle him to the floor. With I guess the three of them sat on him till they actually completed the uh, the landing. And what the article says is some modern jets have cabin doors fitted with flight locks, in quotes, which physically lock the door when the aircraft reaches a certain speed. In all cases, it's impossible to open a cabin door at altitude because of the pressurization of the aircraft. But this has less effect in the final phases of a flight when the aircraft is close to the ground. So <laughs> I was kind of surprised to hear that this guy actually got the door open before the uh, the aircraft uh, landed. Now, if I were the flight attendant, I think my reaction would have been, yeah, go right ahead. Hop on out. It'll solve, solve a lot. Of, save the taxpayers oh, no, a terrible. lot of money. No trial. <laughs> Nothing I mean, as it is, a flight attendant is you know injured trying to prevent him from from opening the door. So, anyway, fascinating. Okay, folks, any letters go to Max Trescott. Yeah, well, for this kind of a problem, this kind of a, a violation, uh, he could have received twenty years imprisonment and a two hundred thousand dollar fine. But that's not what happened in this case. He was sentenced to one year behind bars for interfer uh, interfering with a flight crew. And he was also ordered to pay a $7,500 fine, also three years of supervised release. But uh, there's also a possible fine coming from the TSA, the Transportation Security Administration. So he has that to look forward to. So... I don't know. What do you think? Uh, could have been 20 years. He got one year. I mean, one year in jail is not insignificant. I mean, that's going to have an impact on your life, but it's not 20 I years. I thought it was quite light seeing he yeah. got the door open. Yeah. You know, I mean, when I saw the uh, speed switch, if you remember the old 727s, they had what they called the DB Cooper switch, which is once you got to airspeed, that prevented the back door from being open. Yes. But uh, when I read that, at first, I, I literally had to read it again, thinking, "Did I read this wrong? Was he just trying to open the cockpit door?" It's he had to been really pretty close to uh, final to get down to have no pressurization to get it open. But still, I thought that was a very light sentence for something that severe. Yeah, I agree. Now, uh, Micah sent us an article. It's from the New York Times, which is behind a paywall, so I didn't get to read it. I got to read the headline, but that's all I got to read. Thank you, New York Times. But uh, this one is titled, Man Who Assaulted Flight Attendants Gets 60 Days in Jail. So uh, I don't know if any of you uh, have access to the New York Times and were able to take a look at this. But that, again, sounds like a pretty light sentence. Yeah, I've got it here. It says, 23-year-old 23, 23 Ohio man, authorities say, groped two flight attendants, punched a third before being duct taped to his seat amid jeers from his fellow passengers on a flight last summer, was sentenced 
last week to 60 days in jail. This occurred, oh, on a Frontier Airlines flight from yeah. Philadelphia to uh, to Miami. By the way, the last story was a flight to Florida as well. I'm not saying anything here. I just... <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, and, and so, um, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, going back to the other story, People don't realize that you have to listen to flight attendants. If they tell you to do something, it's almost like a cop telling you to do something in the sense that if you don't follow their instructions, it's a violation of federal law. I was on a Southwest flight on Thursday coming up from Southern California, and I was you know, on board fairly early and was seated up toward the front. And I heard, uh, you know, during the boarding process, flight attendant uh, telling somebody, sir, you can't put that there, sir, you can't put that there. And he continued to persist. Uh, and the, the story was that uh, people who had gotten there earlier had uh, put in, among other things, a wedding dress uh, in the overhead compartment. And this guy was trying to put his suitcase on top of the uh, wedding dress. And apparently he knocked it outside of its of, of its you know uh, cover or whatever it was. Uh, but he, even after the flight attendant said, don't do that, he continued to try and do it. She finally said uh, something like, sir, if you don't follow my instructions, you can stay here. I think he probably <laughs> kind of got the idea at that point because he, he moved to the back. But it was fascinating to me that this gentleman would not obey the instructions when the flight attendant told him to stop doing that. Uh, and all I can tell you is, people, when the flight attendant says something, just do it. You don't want to get thrown off the flight. You don't want to get a fine. You certainly don't want to go to jail. Right. Yeah. And, and you don't have to agree with the position of the flight attendant. That's, yeah. that's not the point. The yeah. point. Yeah. The point is that on aircraft, uh, some people are in charge and that's not you, the passenger. This guy didn't understand that. Yeah, I like to joke around a little bit, but man, I, when I'm with flight attendants, I I don't joke around in a fashion that could be misinterpreted in any way whatsoever. Okay. Yeah, yeah, we may joke around, but it's it's not about you know the business of flying and sitting and doing this and that and the other. It's it's going to be about something totally unrelated. All right, one more quick uh, passenger behaving badly uh, story because I mean this one is also kind of a uh, it. Well, it's incredible. I mean, it also involved an emergency exit door. Yeah, so this uh, this occurred in Chicago at O'Hare International Airport. So when we first saw this, we thought, oh, my gosh, this was Rob. Now, had he not been, you know, in, in having surgery that day, we, 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 <laughs> we might have thought it was <laughs> But uh, apparently a uh, person opened the emergency exit door of a moving plane on the runway, confirming once again, you can get those doors open in certain conditions. And uh, let's see, there was a video shot that uh, showed him opening the door. He then exited the aircraft, which, uh, uh, and then he, I guess, landed on the wing. And then from the wing, jumped down to the tarmac or slid down there from the the, the tarmac uh, dispatchers were heard on the radio. They were kind of stunned at it. And one officer asked, he jumped off of airplane. The dispatch said, he opened the door. We got him on camera. It looks like he opened the back door of the aircraft and walked onto the wing. <laughs> so this was uh, just before the, uh, the Mother's Day weekend. Um, and so, yeah, uh, I mean, crazy, crazy stuff. Yeah. I don't know. People, right? Yep. Virgin Atlantic flight aborted after pilot found to be untrained. This was in simpleflying.com. This is a Virgin Atlantic 
internal training protocol compliance violation, I think. Uh, I think it had to do with the, the first officer still needed um, his um, final assessment, and the the captain was not qualified as a Czech airman. So uh, I guess it was caught after the plane had departed while it was en route. And uh, when that was discovered, they turned the plane around. And I guess they, did they replace the first officer or did they replace the captain? You know, I don't recall. I just know that they uh, made a U-turn after they were, you know, at least an hour or more away and headed back to Heathrow. And I think they ended up with a two and a half hour delay on the ground as they were looking for uh, qualified crew members. You know, it's possible that uh, they may have timed them both out by doing that. So they may have had to replace, uh, you know, both of them uh, since it's a long flight and they could run into uh, duty time limitations. But yeah, I thought it was kind of surprising. Uh, I mean, and the important thing to note is that both people, you know, from a uh, CAA standpoint meet, you know, have the experience, how the certificates legally can fly the airplane. But the internal procedures require first officers to fly with a, a Czech airman uh, before they are allowed to officially, you know, be flying the aircraft as a, as a co-pilot. And as you said, turned out the uh, the pilot was not a Czech airman. Now, this is not something you usually find out after you take off. <laughs> and so this really speaks to a, a major, you know, oops in terms of uh, scheduling. And I'm sure the passengers were not pleased. Uh, and I can only imagine that... Uh, they probably didn't tell the passengers the exact truth. Oh, we've got a minor of issue. We need to return back to Heathrow, and uh, you're still safe at all times. But uh, yeah, I mean, how uh, embarrassing at, at the at the very least. Uh, I mean, you have to worry if if they if they got this small detail wrong, what other details might they be getting wrong? It's like the old joke about the student pilot who was, you know, sitting in the airplane waiting for his flight instructor. Guy jumps in and goes, "Let's go!" and they take off, and you know, it comes out that you know the guy is actually a photographer. Thought he was being taken on a flight. He's not really <laughs> the flight instructor. So you got two unqualified people up there, and that you know th this wasn't that bad, obviously, but <laughs> had had a slight flavor of that. All right. Well, again, we're speaking with Scott Gilmore from tomorrow.io. Now, um, Scott, weather is interesting. Weather forecasting is particularly inter interesting. And I, I think we're getting a sense that there's a lot of uh, computer horsepower involved in these things. Uh, I, I recall in the past on the you know the local news, the weather forecaster or the meteorologist or whoever it was would tell us what they thought the weather was going to be like. But now it seems like mostly they say, well, this this computer model is telling us this is going to happen and that model is telling us that's going to happen and probably something in between them will happen. And there, there's just a lot of... Uh, a lot of computational horsepower going on. Is that a way to, to characterize that? Is that how weather forecasting works these days? Well, yes, it's how it's changing to these days. I mean, weather forecasting is really quite a science and a very good, you know, meteorologist, especially an aviation meteorologist can really add quite a bit of value and how they look at this. What's changing is that, you know, weather for 
or even till today, weather is really a conglomeration of many government sources. Some of it's actually not even refreshed that much. Um, you know, it's really where my company, Tomorrow.io, is really kind of stepping into this is that we're actually deploying our own satellites. The first one goes up this year, uh, first two, actually, uh, by 2024. We're going to have a constellation of 34 low Earth orbit satellites equipped with radar and microwave sounders, which actually then would give radar as far as precipitation coverage globally. But where I'm really keen on this is over the oceanic routes where you don't have any terrestrial radar, you can really change a lot on how you fly aviation when I have better weather data I could arguably challenge some of the extra fuel penalties. So I've got a question. You said precipitation data from the satellite. And typically these days, we get most of our uh, precipitation data from ground-based uh, radar. And a lot of the data historically from weather satellites has been uh, cloud-type uh, data, but not necessarily precipitation data. What's different about these satellites? So yeah, it's a great question. So what it is is these satellites are really equipped to use a combination of the band radar and then microwave sounders, which we can now start to pick up and be more granular and actually start to see more data. You can see the precipitation. You can really be more accurate. And so like some of the, even the government satellites that do pick some of this up might have a refresh rate of hours and hours. Some of it is passes, you know, once every couple of days, uh, our aim is to have this to where no place on the globe has more than one hour latency, which will be a big game changer. Hmm. But going to your original question, Max, about, you know, the computer horsepower of all this is you have various weather models and all weather models kind of drift in and out of, you know, what's actually the true line. And so one of the other things that our company is really working on is to take machine learning and take all the forecasts and start to really look at the forecasts and then compare it to what really happened. Wow. And then with that, you can start to really now dial in to the computer or the you know, machine learning can help pick the best model on any given day. So there's a lot of really exciting things of what really drives me here for aviation in this, because I, I look back on my career and I think about all the times that I've flown across the ocean with a bunch of thermal pages that came off a copier or a, a fax machine where that data was hours and hours and hours old. That's really interesting, especially for me personally, because I have some computer simulation history uh, long ago. And one of my uh, frequent criticisms of uh, computer simulation is uh, they're, they're just that. They are simulations, which is fine, but... Uh, hardly anybody ever goes back later and says, okay, this is what you said. This is what the simulation results were. Now what actually happened? And, you know, can can you, um, you know, justify the accuracy of, of your model? Those things would just go kind of unquestioned. So the fact that, you know, you're using machine learning to examine, you know, all of these models, I think is is kind of fascinating. So in terms of uh, the use for this data or weather intelligence, let's say. Um, let's let's re relate it specifically to aviation operations. 
airlines, air, sure. airports. Who who is looking for this um, this intelligence, this information, and how is it being used? Sure. Uh, so it really falls into really not just an airline, but also airports. But you know, just all of aviation, even corporate aviation. You know, companies that are fractionals. That when you're operating an airplane, when you have better weather and what our company really prides itself on is weather intelligence is to where now I can take these forecasts and once I make them more accurate or we make them more accurate and then you can have better – you have better confidence in the forecast. So I'm sure, you know, Max, in the U.S., you can look at a TAF, you know, and it's it's fairly accurate. But then – get a TAF in certain parts of South America or where there's not a lot of really good quality data, the TAF can be pretty sketchy. And so if you can really dial this in and get much more accurate, well, obviously coming from my background, the first thing I think of is, well, if I could get more accurate on accurately uh, planning a flight, I could have less turnbacks. I could actually put more payload on. I could have a better fuel load. Uh, there's many things on that. And then where it's interesting with the airport, think about uh, somebody in the show here. We talked about Chicago, and I always think about the times that I was based in Chicago in winter, uh, how many airports – that's a real bane is that many airports, You by the time you hit March, you've already spent your whole budget for the year because you had so much more – you know, winter uh, winter storms than you thought. But if you think about how you could take that into an actionable item where you could look at a three, four, five-day forecast and it really is starting to show snowfall rate, I could actually, as an airport, plan better to have better staffing for, you know, clearing the runways, keeping the taxiways clear. And one of the things that we do with our current airline customers today is we really help them with that insight to look at de-icing because it is a very, very expensive venture, as you know. And that if I can see three days out and I have a better look at what the snowfall intensity rate or the liquid water equivalent, I can plan on having stocks for the right de-icing fluid. I can get the right crews in line and I can keep my throughput moving, which – so, yeah, it's – it gets really fascinating. So the use cases on that really, I think, weather, I, I joke all the time that, uh, you know, you have a baseball game, whether it's sunny or it's just a bit cloudy and a five-degree difference doesn't really affect the baseball game that much. But we all know five degrees and that total difference makes a ton of difference for the airplane, how it flies, what you do. When you were talking about the TAF, the Terminal Aerodrome Forecast, I think even a lot of pilots don't realize that that's only valid for up to five miles from the airport, which means we have huge areas between airports for which we don't have forecast at that level of detail. Uh, we yes. used to have the old area forecast, now called the uh, graphical forecast, I think, which has some good data. But boy, talk about lack of granularity. <laughs> I mean, yes. if, you're, if you're out in Wyoming, I remember hitting the nearest button one time. The nearest airport was 45 miles away. That's a lot of area with, you know, think about that, 45 miles in all directions. There's no weather forecast and there's no METAR data. Yep. And so, you know, talking about, you know, a TAF, 
we are working on now, and I'm really just pretty excited about this as well, is that we're literally working on now trying to generate a TAF that is through our system. So, and it, and it's a TAF just like what you said, Max, not to directly to an airport, but literally I should be able to drop a pin anywhere I want. So even if it was a helipad or a vertiport or something like that, to now take that and then look at that to generate basically a machine-driven TAF. And then we're going back and we're validating what we're seeing and trying to make tweaks to the model. And I'm really convinced that this is something that we are going to be able to accomplish. And to be able to generate a custom TAF is really a big game changer, especially in areas, again, where the data quality can be poor. Where do aviation companies get their weather information? Oh, you have, uh, you know, a couple of really large vendors. One of them was, you know, my a company that I just previously had worked for, and there's a few that are out there. And then, you know, globally, it's also um, in different countries, you're responsible to use the weather from the meteorological office in that country. So, uh, again, the sources are pretty much the same. You know, it's all from derived government data where available. And then many other vendors take that data and repackage it and try to make some improvements to it and sell it. Um, and that's what's really exciting where I see the direction of private companies like ours are starting to disrupt and modernize this a bit more. And it's really something that could really use that. In the back of my head, I'm thinking that or, or wondering if uh, tomorrow.io, you know, isn't the uh, SpaceX of, uh, of weather data. It's funny. I've heard that comment quite a bit. I'm talking about like the impacts that all of this has on an airline or an airport. You take a very large, any very large airline, and you, you have quite a bit of resources tied into meteorology, especially around your hubs. And so you really, because that's the bulk of all your traffic. But what we're doing is not, I want to make it clear, it's not that we're out there just telling our machine's going to replace a meteorologist, but it's a great tool to be able to use to have better collaborative making decisions where you might have, a, you know, an airport or an airline, you might be serving 250 cities and you're really focusing a lot of effort on your major cities but you might totally miss the fact that Burlington, Vermont might only have three flights, um, but it could be getting eight inches of snow, which is going to really cause a ripple effect. And it's not just the flights to Burlington, but where's that airplane going to go next? And then it has that constant downrange effect where if you can really look at this and be more proactive than reactive, which is something that spent my life in this industry and it's, you know, I think we could all be better at just how, what, what can we use technology for to be more proactive than constantly reactive? Do airlines and airports have staffs or, or the weather department or do they yeah, outsource many, that kind of, yeah. Yeah, many airlines actually have a, you know, depends on which airline, but some airlines actually have quite a large meteorology department. And again, you know, coming in and using like 
tomorrow.io and our platform and our information is just a great tool to help that meteorology department be more efficient and really get that information out to many stations so you don't really miss any one thing. Are, are those kinds of departments your target customers? Um, it can be. Really, we're, um, we've tended really for the airlines is we're actually really very involved with the stations themselves because uh, – and I don't mean just like the headquarters, but like you know, many airlines have focused cities where if we can give them weather intelligence to really have a visual of – Three days out, four days out, you can start to look at, you know, snowfall rate, rain, winds. There's many, many different factors you can put in. Um, earlier, uh, you know, we talked about with the whole 5G piece, one of, our, one of our current users literally made an insight dashboard to look at weather parameters for airports around, knowing that certain types of aircraft that would be affected and I, I thought it was really genius when he explained it because it gave gave them an idea of how to see three days out that, man, probably going to have some problems here and staff for it and be prepared. Uh, Scott, do you um, – I guess I'm asking what form, uh, you know, the service takes that, that you provide. Are, are your customers looking for something that integrates with their – existing systems and processes or is it uh, an interface or you know an api into you know what you offer how does that work and and i'm guessing it's not a thermal printout anymore is that what you're yeah saying? no <laughs> right. yes yeah no but it's a really good question i mean we've really do uh focus on having a very easy integration to api data we do have customers that basically just have an API subscription to the weather data, historical weather, so they can go back and look. But we do have an actual platform that's, um, you know, it's a SaaS offering, so it's a thin client. You don't have to load it on a machine. It's not clunky like some of the older programs that are out there. And that um, we have basically many, many tools and insights for many verticals. So we we have not just aviation, but we're also verticalized in the energy industry, sports and entertainment, automotive, logistics, and the on-demand sector. So this same platform can be configured to different verticals. So for aviation, obviously, uh, an aviation client could look into our platform, have all these weather insights for monitored locations, but then you'd be able to turn on you know, data that comes from the FAA swim feed. You can see navigational data. You can see airports differently than, you know, a trucking company might, you know, they don't want all that data on there. But, you know, where airlines get a lot of this data are uh, some have in-house solutions that they actually build, that they do all the flight tracking, flight planning. Um, then you have a lot of vendors out there in the space, which, you know, have flight planning systems, flight planning uh, solutions, um, movement, aircraft movement tools. There's many different, you know, tools. What we're really focusing on is really hyper-local quality weather and that our platform is being built out so it will eventually be, and it's actually getting really close now, is that you'd be a flight follower. 
Scott, I, I did discover that there's a tomorrow.io app, which I have been playing with for the last week or so. I find that the the information in this app is is presented differently and presented in a way that it's just more useful for me than other other weather apps. Uh, who who is this app designed for? So actually when the company the company started with a very big focus on aviation. So our company was founded by uh, three guys that were all in the Israeli Defense Force. Two of them flew and had, you know, awful horrific experiences with bad weather data. So as they went to school, that was what they decided to graduate school and started to pursue uh, an avenue of getting better weather technology. So aviation is really, a, would say, kind of a big focus and always has been because of the founders' backgrounds. Um, and having this, you know, really granular data, uh, is really so important because, you know, we talk about, we talk, or I just talked about, you know, how obviously airplanes and airlines and how that operations is affected, but all of these things have this downrange effect that run into your ground ops, your servicing, your fueling, your de-icing, you have, you know, all these different pieces that really all become affected. And then it doesn't take much to have everything start to back up. And then that big ripple effect just carries on into it. So really, this is kind of where we were really what our, we were founded on is really they thought about aviation first. All my other colleagues in the other verticals will probably be quite mad that I pointed that <laughs> no, out, but I'm pretty proud of the aviation piece. And the app, where does that fit in? So the app started really, uh, it was really like a B2C kind of app. So if you do go on and you download our app, there is a, a consume, you know, a B2C kind of app that that one, if you go to the app store, it looks like a white logo. And then there's a the uh, B2B app, which is really like a dark logo. And what I'll do here is I'll... Um, I'll send you the information so you can download that and it gets a little more specific into you can really start with the right account turned on. You can start to look at a lot of the aviation data and things like that. Hmm. Um, but that's where really this this started in the, the format. I, I thank you for pointing that out because that was one of the things I'd noticed um, when I first came here is that how it's presented is very sensible. You know, weather data can be really complex and look at even in my flying career where you just, again, go back to thermal pages. A lot of it was just blobs of data that you're trying to, you know, interpolate in your head where we've done things that have insight dashboards that are very configurable. You can have hundreds of different parameters, but you could build a quick dashboard to show you know, at JFK, for instance, you could pick runways and then look at when the crosswinds are going to be out of limits or when the visibility or things like that that are important to you where you can take a look at this couple days out and be prepared. And didn't I see uh, in, uh, an example or a case where you have displays out on the ramp that would tell the, the, the ramp workers uh, how much time till an impending thunderstorm or, or some event like that? 
we have something that we're working on right now called smart boards. And the smart board technology is pretty fascinating uh, because what it is, is it's a, think of it as an outdoor weatherproof TV screen that you can mount on a vehicle. You could mount it on a gate. You can mount it on the jetway. And it requires no infrastructure of the airport. You don't need to wire anything to from the airport. It runs on an LTE signal. And you can have customizable alerts. So you could tell some, you could really tell the ramp, you know, it's it's hot to make sure they hydrate. But where it gets really interesting is we know lightning as it approaches the field within 10, 5, 3, you know, at five, many places you stop refueling. Three, you start to clear the ramp and get everybody away. One of the things that the smart boards in, com- in combination with our platform and technology is that the smart board then can actually show lightning within 10. It can show within five. Once it's within three and you need to clear the ramp, an audible, uh, audible alert will also go off. This is interesting in the sense that other ways of doing this, uh, whether it was send a text message or radio, when you're under the wing and you're loading baggage or throwing you know, fuel on the aircraft, you might not hear any of that, where an audible and a visual alert is so much more effective. Um, it's interesting you know, to see this. And I also look at this as obviously interesting for other uh, verticals as well. But for aviation, that's something that, especially with lightning season coming, and if you think about even just a medium-sized airport, if I could literally get everybody off the ramp five to six minutes earlier, and more importantly, it's harder to get everybody back and get them up and running again, you know, think about just that all that time really starts ticking to really be a big savings to the airline. Yeah, I think people underestimate the the lightning threat. I was at uh, the Horseshoe Bay Airport near Austin, Texas last week, and the week before, a Cirrus sitting on the ramp was struck by lightning. I took pictures of the, the damage to the aircraft, which was significant. The airplane may never fly again. I talked to the uh, FBO uh, workers who were inside at the time, and they said, because <laughs> I wanted to know, hey, what kind of warning? Was it raining? Did you see lightning? And they said, there was zero warning. There was no rain. The very first lightning strike was the one that hit that airplane out there on the, the ramp. Now, the irony is the gentleman used to hanger that aircraft and had uh, stopped hangering it uh, a few months before, probably to save some money. Uh, but yeah, lightning is a huge uh, threat, not just to property, but to people as well. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that is uh, interesting uh, coming from my background and being around aviation weather now for a few years is one of the things within our platform is we actually take the actual cell of the lightning. And, you know, when you close the ramp, lightning's within three. Basically, we don't open the ramp until you go 10 minutes without a lightning strike. And so our solution is updated every minute in real time with lightning strike, cloud to cloud, you can pick, or cloud to ground. Um, we also do show, you can see the on the screen, you can actually touch where the lightning strike was. It'll tell you how long ago it hit. It'll also tell you whether it was a positive or negative strike because there's actually a pretty big difference in the severity. But what's interesting is as that cell, 
the lightning starts to move. If it is moving, our solution literally will draw legs on that. Like if you just pictured like this oval of lightning that's happening, we'll actually start to draw legs to where you can see 15 minutes and 30 minutes where we estimate where that lightning will come. That actually even helps you be even more proactive to look at it. And I've heard users, airlines talk about, you know, using your app, I could kind of take a look at it and see that, yeah, I'm pretty confident this is going to skim past us and not really, you know, affect everything. And I was able to keep airplanes moving and without shutting everything down. I want one for the museum. For, for two reasons. One, as an educational thing, and two when I've got the ramp open for everybody out on the, looking at the aircraft to be able to bring people in and warn them. But I I think it actually would be a really cool educational tool. Yeah. These are examples of how information, having the right kind of information and timely, it can have a real impact on, you know, uh, on the operations and on the cost, the quality of the, you know, the service being provided or whatever. You know, you, you think about weather, but you don't, well, Scott, you do, but <laughs> most people don't think too much about it, I guess. But the more you think about it, the more you, you realize that it it really does have a big impact. Yeah, I mean, that's just it. And, you know, flying an airplane, I think weather is really critical and just just the slightest little things that, like I said, it's probably a bad analogy. But, you know, I, I joke around that, you know, a baseball game, if it's cloudy, sunny, and a five, six, seven degree difference really doesn't make that much difference where, you know, in our world, that, that can be huge yeah. on the payload and everything else. And besides, basically anybody who's an airplane geek is also a closet weather geek. They all know, they all have their oh. weather apps and stuff. So, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely, which is why I was really drawn to all of this when I had the opportunity, um, you know, when I'd stopped flying, I'd originally gone to Unisys and worked a lot with basically cargo and cargo logistics. And then it was when I went to IATA in Montreal and was really exposed to all these different standard setting groups that IATA did. That's really my journey in weather. I became fascinated in weather just from the turbulence groups that were there. And that's where I really kind of this journey, you know, I, I went to the weather company and then on to here. It's been really a fun, I'm, I'm as geeked out about weather as I still am about flying now. <laughs> That's great. Well, speaking of geekiness, uh, back at, or when we first started, you talked about what was on this uh, new set of satellites you're sending up and you mentioned microwave sounder. Now that's something most people probably haven't heard about. Tell us what that is and what it does. Okay, so in my best way to be able to describe this is you have, you know, the radar, which is an active microwave sensor, and then you have sounders, which are passive microwave sensors, and that allows us to acquire multiple types of global atmospheric data, uh, like the moisture content precipitation to get more granular instead of just a, you know, radar picture of a cloud. Yeah, so traditionally, I guess, uh, for soundings, uh, the National Weather Service releases balloons from something like 109 locations every 12 hours. And as it goes up, it profiles or sounds the atmosphere to figure out what the temperature and dew point is at uh, various altitudes. Sounds like you're just using microwave technology to do essentially the same thing. 
Yeah, and it's really fascinating. The microwave sounders is pretty new. Uh, that has just really been announced just in March is where we partnered with that. So that will be going up um, at, after the first two go up this fall, and those will be following. But it really does, again, I, I can't help it from flying over the ocean for so many times, but I think about how that's really going to uh, really change change how we really fly long haul over the ocean when there's been really no terrestrial radar. And of course, you know, you do have a lot of reports from traffic that's constantly going all the time. But what about these off routes where you don't have a lot of that? You now have a better ability to have, you know, really granular data to help you really plan that flight better. And then honestly, I look at all of that and how we can really have a much better forecast to many parts of the world where, you know, South America is always tough, you know, because you've got all that convective activity going on all the time. Um, it's really going to be uh, exciting to see how we can really change that model. But the satellites, though, are, are actually pretty cool. I did get a really nice presentation from our space team. You know, I, I do find it interesting where a company of about 230 people now, and I think we have more than 100 of us are all in research and development. So we're really, you know, going hard into that. But the satellites themselves, I was really impressed to see they're not much bigger than a college dorm refrigerator. Yeah, that's a fascinating subject uh, in in and of itself. But so when we think about the future here, obviously these, the, the satellites and the capabilities that they bring are going to have a you know a large role in that. Uh, are you able to look you know past beyond that or look uh, 10, 20 years down the road and how this space will look then? I think it's going to be really exciting even 10 years from now because if you think about uh, really getting more granular data to have a more accurate forecast. Not only does this really impact aviation, which is really honestly my big focus, but really one of the things I'm quite proud of at this company is that we have a whole nonprofit part of Tomorrow. It's called TomorrowNow.io. And that we're really looking at providing this weather data to third world nations, parts of the world where, you know, these catastrophic weather events you know, really many of them have very high death tolls where they just don't have that ability to see what's coming. And, you know, I, it's kind of, it's a good feeling to really see, you know, how this is really good for all of the planet. Hmm. I just selfishly tend to focus on all the things in aviation because that's where I live. Yes. But it, no, it's really, if, if you think about 10, 20 years from now, um, having private companies like ourselves and, and getting, you know, more data, getting the, all this technology out there. My hope is that in 20 years, my industry that I spent my whole life in and love will be embracing technology a little better than they have the last 20 years. <laughs> and, and if in 20 years, instead of just forecasting the weather, you can actually make the weather, I think you guys will be very successful. <laughs> <laughs> There's yeah, I, I haven't thought that one out, but yeah, that would be pretty good too. There's the end yeah, game. just having that, you know, accurate ability. Uh, if you just, we talked a little bit about the terminal area forecast, you know, uh, if you have, you know, 
you could have a destination that's going to someplace where the data quality is poor and that, you know, you have a, a TAF that comes from a government source and it's, you know, it's not picking on the government. It's just old technology. And what if you had a better, you know, more reliable, more accurate that you could really get in and look at this and see that, yeah, maybe you're not going to have, you know, quarter mile fog and, and all these different parameters. It's going to be a bit better then I could comfortably, you know, dispatch the airplane, launch the airplane. And especially with freighters, which is why when I read all these uh, passenger uh, passengers misbehaving, it just made me appreciate the last few years of my career just flying cargo around. But <laughs> yeah, it's really, it's really interesting to see, you know, how you could just be so much better. Think about all the perishables that you have on an aircraft that many times can't go and you lose your whole payload for that. Well, all right, Scott. Now, uh, people can learn more about the company because the website's the same as the company name, right? Tomorrow.io. Tomorrow.io. But you have some uh, other uh, uh, social media outlets. Uh, we do have a Facebook page, Tomorrow.io. We have a YouTube channel, which is uh, the Tomorrow.io. We have quite a few interesting uh, videos that we put in there where we do talk about you know, weather today is the new climate, you know, it's climate security is really what we look at it is how you can have that better, better insights and have better, you know, intelligence to be able to react. And then we do have a blog that we're doing that's uh, on tomorrow.io as well. Okay, very good. Scott, thanks so much for uh, the great conversation. It's uh, it really is a fascinating topic, and it, and again, it's another example. And we we talk about this a lot, but it's another example of how uh, there are really a lot of different kinds of careers that are possible in aviation. Uh, many of which you know you may not think of when you're uh, trying to take your passion for aviation and, and turn it into a career. And Scott, you've, you've described a, a whole new one for us as well. So thank you for that. It's really been a pleasure. Like I said, I think, you know, for me, it all started when I saw before the iPad, it was a tough book. And then I saw this and the light bulb went off and I just realized, especially in the military, how much paperwork I filled out that had really key information that you could make better decisions farther down. And I thought, ah, oh, there's something to this. Yes. So... It's working out well. Very good. Yeah. Thanks, Thanks you guys. What's up with the geeks? All right, Max Trescott. What interesting things have you been doing? Well, besides flying around, <laughs> I had a three-day trip to Texas and back last week, which was quite fun, by the way, in the in the vision jet. Um, and, and of course, did the uh, the radar seminar, which was uh, nine to four. That was something uh, that Cirrus put on for uh, vision jet uh, owners. So a number of people flew in. The gentleman who presented had uh, previously been in the uh, Air Force and is now an airline pilot. For uh, he wouldn't give us the name of the airline he worked for, though he said it rhymed with Alaska, which I thought was pretty, <laughs> pretty funny. Alaska Airlines, um, but I also just want to mention uh, what we're up to on Aviation News Talk. So last week on episode two thirty, I was talking about a weather-related accident, which was a Cessna two hundred eight Caravan that crashed. It was uh, carrying freight into uh, Burley, Idaho, and that occurred yeah, just about a month ago. And among the various many factors in that crash was snow, which was reported to be 
uh, about a, a mile roughly uh, in visibility. And that aircraft ended up uh, crashing about four-tenths of a mile short of the runway. I actually uh, flew the approach that aircraft was flying in the flight simulator at my flight school and and taped that and found some interesting little things that uh, hadn't been mentioned prior to that, including an error in one of the moving maps that was uh, rather significant. So I'll talk about that. Uh, And then this week in episode 231, talking about another crash that was in poor visibility, and that is of a Pilatus PC-12 that crashed in Chamberlain, South Dakota, in November, I believe, 2019. Now, the reason that's relevant is that the uh, NTSB has just released the public docket uh, for that accident. They don't have the final report out yet, uh, but it includes uh, photos of that aircraft sitting on the ramp before it departed. You can clearly see snow attached to the tail of the aircraft. There are icicles coming off the uh, you know, the front of the, uh, of the horizontal stabilizer. And then uh, somebody shot video of it uh, taking off. And from the time that aircraft rotated uh, until it disappeared in the what was then half-mile uh, snow was about four seconds. It was just gone. It only stayed in the air about 30 seconds. And uh, the episode is called One Mistake Too Many because I mentioned the, the many, many, many mistakes and breaks of the violation. Uh, and the NTSB ran a, a simulation study in a simulator and concluded, yep, the airplane would have flown in spite of all the many things that the pilot did wrong, except for his final mistake. So anyway, it's just fascinating that, uh, you know, how incredibly capable these aircraft are, but there are only so many mistakes they can tolerate. <laughs> you know, the cumulative effect of all the, the different things eventually uh, resulted in that airplane uh, not flying. All right. Well, listen to those. That's uh, Aviation News Talk, the second best podcast. No, I shouldn't say that. (laughs) Wherever you find podcasts. Yeah, just go to aviationnewstalk.com and you can find subscription buttons there. Very good. Hey, we heard from uh, our main man, Micah, who just got word that the Spurwink Farm Fly-In Breakfast is on for this year, 2022. It's going to be July 10th, Sunday, July 10th. And that's in Cape Elizabeth, Maine. And if you're if you're in the Northeast or even farther away, this is a great fly-in. This is what I think of when I think of the, sort of the, you know the classic American fly-in. All kinds of uh, great people flying in. All kinds of interesting aircraft having pancake breakfast together uh, in a beautiful, beautiful setting at uh, Spurwink Farm Airfield. Uh, so uh, if if you can find a way to get there July 10th this year, um, that would be great. I'm going to try to do that. Micah, of course, will be there. And uh, we look forward to it. I'm glad they're having an event this year. It'll be uh, it'll be great. That that's uh, I guess that's put on by EAA Chapter 141, or at least Bunk Chase is who uh, organizes this is from that EAA chapter. Check it out. I'll see if I can put some links to some more information about that in the show notes. What is it about pilots and pancakes? When I think about fly-ins from the early days, especially when I lived back east, man, it was always pancake fly-ins. I remember going into Limerick, which is uh, northwest of uh, Philadelphia one time. And when I got there, there must have been a 100 people in line for those pancakes. (laughs) So I stood in line, got my pancakes, and barely had time then to race home in my rented aircraft. (laughs) So I had (laughs) limited time, but it was fun flying down from New Jersey to... uh, Pennsylvania for the pancake breakfast. What I found here in California is that while they have some breakfasts, there are not as many of them that are pancake breakfasts. So I don't know what what the deal is there. All I can say is I miss my pancakes. 
Yeah, you've got to have pancakes. It just seems like the right thing to do. Indeed. So, uh, yeah, when I was there a couple of years ago, there were you know, quite a number of listeners uh, that uh, attended, flew in, and it, you know, it was great to meet them. So, it, it's just a fun day, and it's a ah, oh, it's a beautiful setting. It's uh, it's I mean, literally, it is a farm. It is not an airport. It's a farm, and uh, they have a, a grass strip. I'm not even sure. If it's always a grass strip, or if they mow it for, you know, this one event, I, I think actually they do, uh, uh, they do use it as a uh, strip. But uh, you know, it's right along the ocean. You've got great views, just spectacular. Yeah, Cape Elizabeth, which uh, sounds uh, absolutely spectacular. I was up in Maine a couple of a uh, couple of years ago and really enjoyed visiting. And I used to live there when I was about one year old. My uh, my sister was born in Maine, so it was fun going back to uh, to Bangor to see the uh, the the row of houses that uh, my my parents had us living in when we were there for that year year and a half in Maine. Yeah, it's a beautiful state. Really is all right. Well, we have an Australia desk, an Australia news desk from our friends down under. We haven't had one of these in uh, a little while. I was really excited to uh, to to get the word from Steve and Grant that they were sending one for this episode. So uh, let's let's give it a listen. Dateline seventh of May two thousand and twenty two. Well, good day, folks, and welcome to the Australia Desk, the first one for 2022, a little bit later than we thought. Grant, isn't it exciting? I know, 700th episode. This is great. We get to be in on no, the celebration. No, no. Oh, sorry, we're late. We're talking oh. about being late, Grant. This is 701, apparently. Oh, oh, well, okay, so it's a week out, which means as a train driver, you're right on time. Absolutely. Within 14 minutes. <laughs> Bang on time, my friend. Well, within 14 days in the podcasting world. <laughs> well, you know, there you go. And here we go. Uh, sorry, Mr. 700th, guys, but uh, yeah, life got in the way. But here we are for 701. Yes. And now before we go anywhere, Rob Mark, what's happened to him? I, I see him with a neck brace and spinal surgery. What, what on earth? Oh, I don't know. Maybe he fell out of the clown car. I think he probably fell off his wallet. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Rob. Best wishes to you, Rob. Yeah, get well soon, mate. Okay, well, th- i tell you what, there has been a huge amount of aviation news uh, come in in Australia just this last week, Grant. Let's kick off with the biggest one, and that's Qantas, and they have made a significant, I wouldn't say a surprising announcement really, but a significant one. No, we've been knowing since like 2019 when they bought 20% of Alliance Airlines that they were going to buy the whole 100%. Now they're trying to do it. <laughs> we might touch on that one a little bit later, Grant. Oh. I've got a, th- I've got a thousand better reasons, like A350-1000. Oh, Project Sunrise, yes. Project Sunrise, yes. yes. Qantas wanting to go nonstop from Sydney to London or Sydney to New York. So they've got an A350-1000 is what they've bought, 12 of them. 12 of them, and they're buying more Airbuses uh, as well, which which really makes this a really significant. I don't think I can really overstate how significant mm. this is. Qantas is very definitely turning away from Boeing. Uh, the manufacturer with which they've been synonymous forever. In fact, I think uh, we mentioned this when this was mooted at the end of last year. And uh, I don't know, I think in the industry, it's probably a, one of the worst kept secrets <laughs> going around in this part of the world that they were going to go with the one, with the A350-1000, but uh, now it's official. Yeah, totally. And uh, Qantas have been with Boeing since the start of the jet age with the 707. It's all been Boeing. And not anymore. The 737s are being retired and replaced with A320 family. That means A319s, A320s, A321s, um, some of the long-range A321s. But uh, no, this A350-1000 is humongous. And you know what isn't humongous about it? 
is the number of seats they're going to have in it. The A350-1000 is designed for 350 to 410 seats, and they're only going to have 238. This from the company, the same organization that squeezed over 330 seats into the 787-8 when it's flown by Jetstar, which is designed to be 210 to 250 passengers. Mate, if they're only going to have 238 on an aircraft that could hold much more, that tells me they've had to strip out so much weight to make this nonstop flight. Yeah, well, of course, they're wanting to use these for ultra, ultra long haul flights. We're talking, you know, Australia to, uh, you know, to the UK in one hop, uh, certain destinations in the US. And uh, in fact, Alan Joyce, the CEO, is actually talking about quite uh, a few other destinations. Let's have a listen to him at his press conference this week. We have 12 aircraft on order from Airbus. That's the start of it. If this goes, we will probably order more. But we will have a daily service when we put them on. Daily New York, daily London, hopefully both Sydney and Melbourne as we activate all 12. There's so many destinations Qantas can fly to direct with these aircraft that it couldn't fly to before we had Project Sunrise. Yeah, Grant, and uh, destinations including Rio and Paris. So there's some uh, really ultra-long-haul legs that uh, up until this point required at least a stopover somewhere along the way. Oh, yeah. This is huge because it's pretty much going to destroy the need for stopping off in Asia or the Middle East on the way to Europe, which is massive and means that uh, you know Australians no longer have to stop partway, which some people kind of like the stop. The Qantas have tried to say, oh, no more having to rush for your next plane and all this kind of stuff. But a lot of people actually want to get off an aircraft after eight to 10 hours and or 12 hours even. And so for many people, the thought of being on board an aircraft for 20 hours is somewhat daunting. Sounds fantastic. I what know, are you I know. <laughs> well, especially as I'd probably be in business class. <clears throat> well, wouldn't we all, mate? And, of course, uh, the interesting thing that you mentioned there is, of course, uh, taking as uh, quite a few seats out of the aircraft, which will, of course, save on weight and uh, positively affect aircraft endurance. But Qantas has a different take on that. They're actually talking about it uh, making space for what they're terming well-being zones, areas where people can get up and have a walk around. And they've actually done quite a few uh, studies on this through the Project Sunrise uh, process, looking at ways that they can uh, help people to get up, walk around and move around and stay at least partially active on what are going to be some very, very long-haul flights. So uh, an interesting development there indeed. And, of course, um, Qantas are not wanting to talk about the endurance side of things. That's never really as snazzy in the media, but uh, it certainly is a good marketing point for them. And that's uh, what they'll be pushing going forward. Yeah, that's right, Steve. Lots of, lots of work done there on assessing light levels, food types, um, as you said, the wellness zones. Oh, how nice. Uh, you know, all those kind of things. But, you know, to be honest, if they could, they would put more seats in. It's why their um, A380s never had the bowling alleys. <laughs> there you go. Now, uh, we mentioned, of course, that they're looking to replace um, some of the old, as some of the older 737s start to be withdrawn from service in coming years, they'll be replaced by Airbus A321. So that's the other really significant. And we're talking at the moment, uh, Qantas is talking about up to 40 airframes. Now, Qantas, by world standards, is not a huge airline. They've got something around 120 to 130 aircraft in their mainline fleet. So, you know, I don't suppose this is really going to hurt Boeing in a major way, but, you know, I still think um, the, the executives over there in uh, in Boeing HQ would not be happy about this development. No, they certainly wouldn't be, mate. They certainly wouldn't be. Now, some other aircraft, Grant, you touched on Alliance, Aircraft, Alliance Airlines, uh, which uh, Qantas has been uh, acquiring uh, stakes in over the years. Uh, Alliance has been a very successful regional operator around Australia in recent years. 
And uh, now Qantas is looking to uh, buy completely into that airline. And uh, in fact, they'll be looking at getting Airbus A220 aircraft, a demonstrator in Air Baltic colours, in fact, of which arrived in Australia this week. Indeed. And the A220 makes a lot of sense in Australia. It's a great replacement for uh, 717s and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it, there's a lot of uh, 717 flights over on the West Coast for the mining communities and on the East Coast down to Tassie and things like that. So the A220 gets just amazing reviews on terms of cabin spaciousness, great positioning of windows, all that kind of thing. Uh, so lots of sense there. And yeah, as I said before, Qantas have been uh, telegraphing that they were going to do this 100% purchase. The ACCC's investigated and gone, mm, can't see a problem there. So, yeah, it's it looks like as long as the uh, shareholders of Alliance say yes, then this is going to happen. Okay. Well, so that's the, all the big airline news uh, from Australia this week. Um, now, we're going to just touch briefly before we finish up on a couple of other interesting developments. The Royal Australian Air Force, Grant, they're getting tattoos, all of them, tattoos later this year. Well, so that's how I read this press release. Well, it's a good thing I already uh, have a few tattoos because I work with the Royal Australian Air Force and, yeah, that would be embarrassing if I... Uh... You, you are in, man. You are in. <laughs> I don't think it's quite the tattoo you think it is and it's not de plane, de plane, boss. It's uh, basically... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mate, it's at Ipswich, and which is near Brisbane in Queensland, and that's where we've got the Amberley Air Base, and they're saying the Ipswich Amberley Air Tattoo is going to be held on the 29th and 30th of October, 2022. How cool is that? Boy, I'll be checking my leave schedule, Grant. I think we're going to have to go up there. Can we get media passes for that? Oh, I think once we uh, get things going again. Uh, are we still famous in the aviation? I don't really know. Notorious. Are we still notorious. Well, notorious, that'd be the word. Yeah, so that's that's really good. And it's good to see um, air displays and you know, all this sort of thing uh, firing up again after, of course, a couple of years of uh, COVID shutdowns everywhere. So this will be the first time uh, that the gates of uh, RAF Base Amberley have been open to the public since 2008. Yeah, it has been a while. So it'll be great to see what they put on and what aircraft they're going to have. Of course, uh, I suspect we're going to see what would have been at Avalon the Australian International Air Show, if that had gone ahead during uh, 2021, the uh, centenary of the Royal Australian Air Force, 100 years, it was going to be huge. So I suspect uh, a lot of the planning that went into prepping for that that never happened will probably wind up happening at this air tattoo. Yep. So uh, for those of you here in Australia, make sure you set that uh, that in your calendars for uh, the 29th and 30th of October. Uh, Grant, briefly to um, a big announcement air show wise, the Pacific Air Show from the US over there in Huntington Beach, California. They're going to be coming here in August of 2023 to the Gold Coast in Queensland. We might talk about that in the next desk. And also, Grant, the former Red Bull Air Race, now known as the World Championship Air Race, uh, they've now locked in. This news came through a couple of weeks ago. Locked in for Lake Macquarie, which is actually just south of the Williamtown Air Force Base in New South Wales, up there at Newcastle, a beautiful part of the world. Coincidentally, it's our good friend Matt Hall's home base, so that'll be used as the race airport. Uh, Matt Hall, of course, the current Air Race World Champion. So uh, we're looking forward to that. That'll be taking place later in uh, 2022. So, Grant, lots going on at the moment, and it's great to have some news to talk about again. Yeah, you know, there's so much to talk about, and there's so much going on. I think we should spin off a podcast. What a novel idea. Where have I heard that before? Uh, I think it was back in 2009. Well, anyway, <laughs> that's everything we have for you on this Australia desk. You know, I think uh, we should just play out this music. There's really only one thing we can say about Rob. The technology. Yes. Better than he was before. Better. Stronger. Faster. Until the next time we talk to you, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran, And mostly intact, too. 
Cheers, folks. Uh, so, you know, Grant, um, I reckon if I had spinal surgery, there's probably a reasonable chance I'd be able to fit in Rob's tiny little car next time I visit the US. Just saying. Oh, wow. That would be such a miracle of modern science, mate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. No lack of energy with those two guys, huh? Oh, yeah. Always lots of energy from those guys. But I, I don't think this is fair to have a pick on Rob Knight. I mean, anyone who's <laughs> recovering from, from back surgery. Uh, I had a text message from him a, a day or two ago, and he said everything was sore from the, the waist up. It's like that doesn't sound, oh. you know, pleasant at all, uh, you know, a week after surgery. So, uh, Good time to make him laugh. Yeah, well, we wish him the best. Yeah, we don't, we do. don't want him to make, make him laugh too hard because we don't want the stitches to come out. <laughs> no, we don't. Oh, my. Well, thanks, Grant and Steve. Uh, it's always wonderful to hear from them. And, uh, yeah, the energy level is always uh, always high. Hopefully we'll have some more OzDesk reports in the future, in the not-too-distant future. All right. So that's going to wrap it up for this episode of the Airplane Geeks podcast. Again, our guest was Scott Gilmore the Global Vice President and GM of Aviation at Tomorrow.io. Check them out. We'll have links to uh, their uh, YouTube channel, uh, its Facebook page, the other things that we that we mentioned. You can find us at AirplaneGeeks.com. And the show notes for this episode are at AirplaneGeeks.com slash 701. The email address is thegeeks at AirplaneGeeks.com. Well, David had to drop off uh, earlier, but Max Trescott's still here. Max, where do folks find you online? I'm still here. I'm still here. Yes. And if people have not listened to the Aviation News Talk podcast, I invite you to come take a listen. Just go out to aviationnewstalk.com and you can click on any of the buttons there that allow you to subscribe to the show. And if you want to send me an email or if you have questions, I get questions from people about various aviation topics. At the top of that page, aviationnewstalk.com, just click on the contact button and you can shoot me an email. Great. And you can... Learn all the places where I hang out at 30,000feet.com. All words, spell it out. So please join us again next week as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody. Keep the blue side up. And thanks for listening. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>